In Romans chapter 8, the same thing. Paul says that we were all predestined. Which one of us has the right to tell God, why did you make me this way? It's like the clay trying to tell the potter, hey, I want to be thus. But good morning. Open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, we're moving along into a very uh, practical lesson. Paul deals with theology quite a bit, and uh, he does so in his, in his writings. From the book of Romans uh, all the way to 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and now into Galatians. And when we were in the book of Romans, we started off with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul had said. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we talked about the gospel. And ever since we've started diving into the gospel, I started to share a little bit more about the gospel and the gospel message. There is a bluntness in the gospel, an utter absence of vagueness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it characterizes the truth of what Jesus Christ did. False religions, by the way, are necessarily, they have to be vague, uh, not, not the gospel. There is a blunt, straightforward, the gospel tells the truth and shares with each one of us who we are and who God is. The gospel tells the truth with candor, with honesty, with straightforwardness, and a lot of times it is blatantly and course it is offensive. It is offensive to those that don't like to hear the gospel message. Now, unfortunately for many people, we have called just about everything the gospel. When we come together and we invite people, we say we are sharing the gospel. When we feed the homeless, we, we say we are sharing the gospel. That's not the gospel. I mean, that's, those are things that we should do. We tell people that God has a plan for you, He has a purpose for you, He has, in which He does, that He loves you beyond measure, but that is not the gospel message. The gospel message was proclaimed by the apostles first and foremost, and it was blunt and it was in the face of the people that they were talking about and talking to. As in Acts chapter 2, if you want to turn with me to Acts chapter 2, Peter's first message of the gospel message, and Jesus Christ Himself and John the Baptist they preached the same gospel, and it was a gospel of repentance. And the repentance was given and, and uh, offered to those who would listen. And before the message could be received, Jesus Christ and John the Baptist, and here in chapter 2 of Acts, Peter says, after he gets up and he starts speaking to Pentecost in verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear the words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held for David himself says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. Now turn over to the next page, or in verse 37. In verse 37, as Peter is talking, and actually in verse 36, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
And the message was, you killed Jesus. Now, they probably didn't do it then themselves, but they had a part in it. Every time that we sin, we have to go back to the cross to have Jesus Christ crucified. And the natural response should be, Let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that this God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to him and Peter and the rest of the apostles' brothers, What shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. Turn away. Repentance is a big part of the gospel. Paul shares on his experience on the road to Damascus. And he shares his experience that as he met Jesus Christ, believing that everything he was doing was proper, was right, was godly, from God, everything, that every law that he would follow. And, and so when he came in contact with Jesus Christ himself, he recognized, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? Who are you? What is it that I'm doing wrong? How can I serve you? And from that point forward, Saul, who became Paul later, Changes his mind. He repented from everything that he thought was right. Every religious aspect of his life, everything that he grew up with, it had a turnabout. And he changed and he turned into the disciple that Jesus Christ needed to reach the Gentile people. Turn with me to Acts chapter 7. Just a few messages, a few pages later. Right after the signing of the seven, Stephen gets up and he starts to preach. And they tell Stephen, what are you doing? And he gives them a history lesson of how all the prophets had come before Jesus Christ and how they uh, harassed all the prophets, how they killed the prophets. And, And then in verse 51, he says, he says, Stephen says to the people, you stiff necked people, uncircumcised in heart, might be circumcised by the flesh, but not in the heart and ears. And you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. The gospel message is blunt, in your face, and very offensive. And it is very offensive to those that don't want to hear about their sin, that don't want to hear about who they are, the things that they've done. And it offends, and it continues to divide and to split and to cause all this division. It is not inclusive. The gospel message is not that, not only that Jesus loves you, which he does. The gospel message is why does Jesus love you? Why did he go to the cross? Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15 very eloquently, I guess you would say, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died according with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day and he appeared to the disciples according to the scriptures. And so there is a message. Paul succinctly said, this is the gospel message. Yet he describes it and he explains it. And every person that has ever brought the gospel message always brings out the fact that, number one, God is holy. He's holy. And there's nothing that we can do about making ourselves holy. This is why Jesus Christ had to come to the cross. And every human being is a sinner. And because we're sinners, we cannot come before God in our own flesh. Therefore, God sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for those who would believe. And that cross, on that cross, what God did is He took my sin and He imputed my sin, your sin, the world's sin, and those who would receive Him 
as Lord and Savior. And God took Jesus Christ's righteousness and imputed it unto me. And so therefore, now as a disciple of Jesus Christ, I live my life for him. The gospel message includes those points. And I know that there are a lot of people that are trying to deconstruct the gospel message. They're trying to get away from all the ugliness that it really just points out to human sinfulness. But there's more to the gospel than just God loves you. There's more to the gospel than you can do better. You can do good. And so in Galatians, what Paul has done is he says, this gospel message that Jesus Christ died for, this is what God has done for us. And now you're going back to the law and you want to live in such a manner? And, and Paul says, look, right before chapter 4, last week in chapter 3, and I just want to back up to verse 23, he says, now before faith came, we were held captives under the law, imprisoned, until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither now Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ." and you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Over and over again in these six verses, Paul says, in Christ, in Him, you are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. When you become a Christian, when God has called you, He places His Spirit in your heart, and you are placed in Christ. And therefore, you are no longer part of this world, you are now part of God's family. And so when Paul is sharing this, he's, he's trying to tell us, look, now that you're secured, you're secured, you're set. You are now a child of God. The problem is a lot of times we don't act like children of God, or if we do, we're disobedient children of God. Or sometimes, for whatever the case may be, we don't feel like we are part of the family of God. There seems to be something missing at times. There seems to be something that just doesn't resonate. You know, I, and, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, where, yes, when we, re, when we realize that we can't come before God, that's when we should come before God. Because we recognize that we cannot stand in front of God in our own righteousness. We have to stand by the righteousness that was imputed upon us, that was given to us. And our sinfulness that was taken away from us and it was given or imputed to Jesus Christ. And therefore, we can stand before God, boldly come to the throne of grace. Yet there comes times when we don't or we don't feel as if God loves us. It was interesting that I was talking to somebody here a few weeks ago that came to our church service and said, hey, where's your sister at? How come I haven't seen her? Somebody that hasn't been here in a long time. And, I, and she says, you know, she was going to come with me, but she said... You know, I'm too much of a sinner. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's exactly how we should feel. We are sinners, but because of the righteousness that has been placed upon us, we are clothed with it. God doesn't see that anymore. We have to recognize that. And in the gospel message, it, it, the gospel message has to include that, did include that. It causes, well, what happened with Stephen, they didn't say, oh, Stephen, oh, you know, we did kill Jesus Christ. You're right, if you know the story. They did not 
call Stephen a faithful saint of Jesus Christ. But what they did is they picked up huge rocks and they killed him. They did not want to listen to the message. Those are two things that will happen. Those are two uh, events that will take place in your life. Those are two scenarios as when you share the gospel and you share the gospel message that are cut to the heart, the heart will respond, what do I need to do? Or, you know what, you're just full of lies and, you know, deception and you're trying to divide or deceive or whatever the case may be. You know, I, I want nothing to do with you. Please leave me alone. I was at an event yesterday and I was talking to this man and he says, you know, uh, well, we were talking about our, our children. Uh, he has a, a handicapped daughter and so do I and we kind of related there. And before he left, I says, uh, do you mind if I pray for you? And he says, sure, is it going to hurt? And I go, it should. He goes, well, no, no. I said, is it going to hurt? I didn't say help. Is it? No, it should hurt. Prayer should hurt. If you can stand before a holy God and not recognize your sin, then it's not going to hurt. But if you recognize your sin, it should cause you to cry out, Abba, Father, as we're going to see here in just a bit. It should cause you to do that. Well, you know, unfortunately, he says, well, okay, if it's going to hurt, <laughs> I don't want to participate in this prayer. But let me read verses 1 through 7 for now, and then we'll jump into 8 through 11. But let me read this. We'll go to uh, the Lord's Prayer. We're going to go over some of these points that Paul has pointed out for us today. In Galatians chapter 4, reading out of the English Standard Version, it reads like this. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardianship and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has set the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Father in heaven, thank you once again for this marvelous promise. Sometimes we don't feel, I don't feel, as an heir, as a son. I know that I fail, and it causes me to want to run away like Adam did. But Lord, this promise is a promise to all those who are genuinely saved. And Lord, we ask you to help each person within the sound of my voice to remember this, to fall back to this. Because we are your children, we need to represent you in such an honoring way. And so, Father, thank you once again for this portion of Scripture. Lead us in all things, we pray, in Jesus' name. And everyone says, Amen. What, what Paul does here is he sets it up. He says, you know, you need to understand that you are, you are in error. He, said, he talked about this a little while ago, uh, last week. And uh, he says, I, I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, he is no different than a slave. In the Roman household, as we talked about last week, you, we had, they had these tutors, these intermediaries. These, uh, they weren't teachers. They were schoolmasters, in a sense. They were people placed, they were generally slaves, placed over the young adult or young child until he reached adulthood. And once he reached adulthood, then he was let go into the world and he was 
called an adult. He was given the privileges of an adult. This is in the Roman world. And in the Roman world, what they would do is they would take off the childish toga that he would have, and they would put on the uh, adult toga, which was a plain toga. The childish toga had symbols and all kinds of little, I don't know, Mickey Mouse characters on them. I, it, somehow they, they were differentiated by the color, and, but, but the adult toga was plain. And it made you a Roman citizen. And you were now able to vote and go to battle and all these other things, discuss with other adults. And there was this huge celebration. You, you know, and it's missing in our culture today, at least in, that I have seen. I know we have what's called the debutante for women. Also the sweet 16 uh, in, in the Latin countries, we have the quinceanera, where it's a coming of age type of thing. Uh, the Jewish people have a bar mitzvah on the Sabbath right after their 12th birthday, I believe, they are, they gather together and the father says a prayer, Father, dear God, this is your son. You have allowed me to watch over him and care for him. Now he is your son. He now has become a son of the law. Bar, which is son, mitzvah of the law, a son of the law. And so they would have this celebration into bringing this child into the responsibility of knowing what the Word of God meant. Today, a bar mitzvah is more about giving money to the child. See who can outgive who and how much money this child can actually raise. So, but there was a distinct uh, differentiation between a, a child and an adult. Today, we have something that's called adolescence which allows the child to continue to be independent or irresponsible and, and yet be under the guardianship or the household of the father. And, and we have this line that's blurred, and we have adults that act like children, and we have, unfortunately, children that have to take care of their adult parents and just in, in some of the things that, that happen in this world. But, but back in the, in the days of Jesus Christ in the Roman era, there was this differentiation. There was, you know, you're a child, now you're an adult. But there was this proving period. There was this time that they worked with him. They would take the, uh, the, the, the Greeks, what they would do is they would take the child in front of everybody and the child would bring all his toys that he would, had accumulated all these years and he would lay them down before the altar of Apollos and, and girls as well, all their little cars or whatever the case may be. And, and as they said this prayer or this, whatever they would do, the Greeks would announce now in front of Apollos that this is no longer a child. He puts away his childish things. It's, it's the phrase that Paul used, when I was a child, I acted like a child, but once I put away my childish things, I now became a man. And Paul is making all these connections as far as the law is concerned, and now that you're under grace, and how grace is now sufficiently matured you. And so when we talk about this inheritance, these sons, these children that were under the law, Paul says, you know, they're just like slaves. They may have all this authority, but they can't wield it. They can't use it. They may even be princesses or kings in the making, but they can't make any decisions until that time comes. And in some cultures, it would be dependent upon the father. And they would work with them, with all these tutors and teachers and, and disciplinarians that would help the child to grow up. The law of God was exactly the same way. Paul is saying this to us. He says, this is what the law is. This is how the law works. I mean that, he says, when I was a child, excuse me, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, he's no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, everything belongs to him, but he can't use it. Not until he becomes an adult, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father in the same way. And this date, this time was set aside and everybody knew it and everybody came together and says, now he's a man. And now he can use this inheritance. If you, if, if you think about this inheritance, you think about this, this picture that, we're, that I'm trying to paint, 
It starts to make a little bit more sense when the young son came up to the father in the parable of the, uh, uh, it's called the, the wayward son is what I call it. Uh, but it's, it's the, um, can somebody help me there? In Luke chapter, um, the prodigal son, thank you. The prodigal son, sometimes we think of prodigal as being, uh, you know, is, is lost or uh, decrepit, or whatever the case may be. But prodigal basically means wasted. It means the wasted son. Everything that he had, he just wasted it. In essence, if you were to sing the song that Freddie Fender used to sing, Wasted Days and Wasted Nights, you can actually say prodigal days and prodigal nights. It's the same thing. And this prodigal son, when you understand the inheritance that he was going to receive, he was not going to receive it until the father said it was okay. So when the child became an adult, or thinking he was an adult, the father says, okay. So it makes sense now a little bit more when you start to understand on how this sonship works. Before coming to Christ, we are all under this law. And God requires worship from everyone. From every nation, from every person, whether you're righteous or unrighteous, God requires worship. There is no excuse, Paul says in Romans chapter 1. There is no excuse. And so this child, uh, he's under managers. In the same way, we, when we are children, were enslaved in the elementary principles of the world. These elementary principles, the things that, that just we get caught up in the, the various seasons and times and, and things that dictate to us what we should do or not do. There's a lot of politics that's involved in the churches. And I don't mean politics within the church, but I mean the governing politics. And they, they force us and they show, tell us what it is that we should do. This is why some churches had decided we're not going to stop meeting. You know, the politicians are coming to us now and they're trying to control the churches. Church is essential. Amen? Church is essential. And so a lot of churches, you know, they decided to say, you know, we're not going to do this. And some of them got in a lot of trouble. Some of them, you know, gotten fined. But they said, we're still going to fight this. As a matter of fact, one of the biggest churches that uh, got in trouble was uh, Grace Community. Grace Community says, you know, we're not, we're not going to be meeting together. Well, you're going to get fined. Okay, well, fine us. And the fines that they're paying, they're paying into a escrow account where nobody can touch it. It's there until this thing is all settled. They've been going to court. They've been going to court. Uh, nobody's gone to jail. But And so this is some of the things that, that, that goes on outside of the church. And Paul says, you get caught up in all this elementary stuff. Not only the doctrines and the teachings and just everything, the elementary teachings of this world, the elementary uh, thoughts and principles that, that seem to hold you down from your genuine sonship. You are heirs. You are children. You are a child of the Most High God. And Paul is saying, we need to act this way. We can't let these things seem to take over our lives. We can't seem to let, the, uh, the, let not only politics, but just whatever it is that seems to scare you or frighten you. Because there are a lot of things in this world that will scare you and frighten you. You know, death. I know a lot of people are deathly afraid of dying. Can I say it that way? They're afraid of dying. And, and I understand. I, I, too, I'm not wanting to die. But it's graduation. We know this. We know that we're going to graduate, that we're going to move on into the presence of God. But it's just a matter of getting there. So, so the benefits of being a child, Paul says, look, you're, you're a child. You're a child of God. And now, so what I have to do is I have to walk, walk you through and, and share with you what it is that, that you need to see. 
Here's what you need to see in this, in this whole process of becoming a child of God and what God is doing and, and how he is walking you through being a child of God. The first thing he says is, number one, he says to you and he says to me, I am adopted. I am adopted into the family of God. We have the ability to call God our Father because of our adoption. And we have the ability, yet somehow we seem to fall away. We don't feel adopted. We don't feel like His child. As I mentioned earlier, one reason could be because of the impact of the results in our service. We don't see a whole lot of things happening in our life. God, I've given you my life. I'm doing the service that I believe I was called to. I don't see the fruit. I don't see the things, you know, that happens. And, and I personally, that could be part, that, that is part of one of my demises. And I, I'll let you know this for, for right now, for a fact, I've not given up on that. I mean, I've not succumbed to that, should I say. I've not surrendered to that thought. Yes, as a pastor, it's nice to have a congregation that is huge, growing, budding, and all kinds of things. You know, that's great. And for the last 20 years, I've asked, okay, Lord, you know, is, is that really true? And he says, I want you to stay put. He says, Father, I ain't going nowhere until you tell me to move. There are many times that I've tried to move, and it just seemed to fall apart. And we decided to take off and, and you know what, put the house up for sale and everything else, and it just didn't work. I was doing it under my own strength, and God says, stay put. And so here I am. I, I don't know what God's going to do. Sometimes in your life, you go to church, you're wondering, okay, Lord, how come things aren't working for me like they do for everybody else? Everybody else seems to be healthy and, and wealthy and all kinds of blessings upon them. What about me? Am I really your child? Sometimes it's because of disobedience that, that steals our assurance. Sometimes because we don't see the things that God is showing us and, and we don't want to obey. A lot of times there's uh, inconsistencies. And there's inconsistencies in my life. You know, I, I keep falling back on that same sin over and over and over again. Maybe, maybe I'm not a child of God. You know, I, right with that, there's things that I just can't give up, things that are habitual, things that just seem to happen every day. I, you know, I, I knew I shouldn't have done that. I should not have done that. Sometimes we get the temptation of doubt that causes us to doubt the fact that we're saved, to doubt the fact that, you know, that God really exists, the doubt. And that's a temptation, by the way. And that's a temptation that Satan uses every single time. He used it with Jesus. He used it with Eve. He uses it with everyone else. And he causes you to doubt. Did God really say that? Well, I don't believe. Well, it's good. I'm glad to know what you believe. It's good to know what you believe. But what does the Word of God say? What does God's Word say? Neglect of worship can cause us to fall away and to just get cold and, and, and not feel like we're connected anymore, like this... One person I was talking about and, and says, you know, I, I can't come to church. I'm a sinner. I, I, yeah, you know, I, I just, you guys will all laugh at me. I, I don't feel connected anymore. And, and I think uh, those that come back, that have been back just recently, have noticed that there's been a change within the congregation. And, and uh, many of you that are still watching online, I, I want you to know that we're still alive and well. And we're doing well. And we thank God for that. And, and so there's, there's all these different reasons. But how can I be sure that I am a child of God? How is it? Number one, I am adopted. I am adopted into the family of God. Now, for some people today, the concept of adoption carries, uh, well, you know, almost a second-class type of a status. And uh, this is probably one of the richest statements that Paul has given us as far as being a part of God's family. Because if you know anything about, about adoption, you see, when you were born, you were born into a family, and your family had no choice 
as to who they were going to get. You were just born. You were just brought into their life. No choice. You know, I had no choice and well, neither did they. And so you, you have what you have. But in adoption, if you know anything about adoption, there is a process that you have to go through. And most people, they go into an adoption agency and they go in with this burden or this hole in their heart or this desire to, to love a child. And, and, and they show up and they see all these kids and they say, well, I want to take them all. You know, it's not practical. You see, I, I want to take at least, you know, uh, this one. But they have a sister. Well, I'll take her too. And, and for most people, they, they have this compassion, this desire to bring somebody in. Somebody not of their family, born out of their family, bring them in to their family. And in the Roman days, this was a process that had to be ratified by at least seven people. It was a process that had to be done in such a way where they would shake hands and they would sell the child to the person that was going to buy or adopt the child and they would give them something back in return and in order to ratify it it would have to be done again this process went on for like three or four different times and someone there had to be witnessing this and it wasn't just something that you can just say well i'll take this child it was a huge process and it was a process that took many many weeks if not if not months and the steps were trying to get this child into the family because maybe you really love this child or most of the time it was because they were a benefit to the family, either through the means that they had or the works that they could do or how they can plow the fields or whatever the case may be, a good warrior, a good soldier. I don't have any sons. All I have is daughters. I need an heir because everything that they went through to get this child was done in such a way that you could not break this. You could not break this. And the adopting father, what he would do, and he would present his case in, in the presence of all these people. And when, when all this had been done, the, the adoption had been completed. And, and in the consequences of adoption, which are not most significant, uh, very significant for Paul, he says adoption, uh, an adopted person lost all his rights to his old family. Once you adopt a child in Rome, you had no more connection with the family, no more rights. Now you received all the father's rights. And the father was the one to determine who that child was going to be, who that child was going to be picked. And you, you really need to see something with me in Ephesians chapter 1. This is the next book. We're going to really dive into this when we get there. But in Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm going to be reading out of verse 3. Because God talks about salvation in many facets. You're born again. You're adopted. You're regenerated. You're, uh, uh, you are uh, righteously uh, regenerated. Paul talks about salvation in many ways, kind of like he talks about the church. Jesus, Jesus said that the church is a flock. Paul says that it's a body. He calls it a building to try to get the point across. But in, in Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Even He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He, was, he predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. You see, the reason I believe that a lot of people don't understand the doctrine of predestination, okay, they don't understand the doctrine of adoption. And it's very simple. Just like a father goes out and adopts a child and chooses that child, the same thing happens with God. 
Just like when Jesus told Nicodemus in, in John chapter 3, you must be born again. Just like you had no contribution to your birth, you have no contribution to your spiritual birth as well. God is the one who gives you the belief. He gives you the faith to respond to his call. Later on in chapter 2, well, let's go there. Let's just do that now. Chapter 2 of Ephesians. He says to us, And you were dead in the trespasses of your sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You see, we belonged to the prince of the power of this air. That was our family. And God saw you. He saw me in that family. As a matter of fact, he tells the Pharisees in John chapter 8, you're of the father the devil. We were all dead in our trespasses. We were dead, dead, dead in our trespasses. We want nothing to do with God. We were enemies of God. There is no one righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. And what God has to do, he goes to this agency, I guess you would say, and he says, I want that one, and I want that one. I want that whole family right there. And he chooses those that he adopts. You were predestined to be adopted. And once you understand the principle of adoption and how it all wraps together, Paul is not just throwing this word out there just to make it sound right or good, but theologically it makes sense. When you look at the rest of Scripture in Romans chapter 8, the same thing. Paul says that we were all predestined. Who, you know, Which one of us has the right to tell God, why did you make me this way? Can't God create those vessels for noble purposes and those for unnoble purposes? It's like the, it's like the clay trying to tell the potter, hey, I want to be... Thus, from the very beginning, in Genesis, when he created man, he made man out of dirt, mud. He created man out of mud and made man and put him on the ground. Now, if he would have just sat there and says, okay, now I'm going to wait, God says, I'm going to wait till you ask me to give you life. I'm going to wait for that. From the very beginning, God picked up this mud man and blew his breath into his lungs and brought him to life. You as a dead individual cannot ask for life. You're dead. God gives you the right to be adopted. Well, we're going to get into that a little bit more as we get into Ephesians. And, you know, it's a very difficult doctrine to understand. It really is, and it really shouldn't be. If you can grasp the doctrine of adoption, if you can grasp what Paul is trying to say here as far as how we are adopted and what, you know, what, why we're adopted... And the purpose is to be sons of God, heirs. And, and uh, look at the, in your outlines, 1 John 3, 3.10. He says this, by this it is evident. Here's the evidence of being adopted. Who are children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The righteousness that you and I are working through our life. We're working our salvation out. We're working it out in such a way that, that brings fruit. And the fruit is what is determined by what type of root you have. Where do you have your roots planted? The roots determine the fruit. And when you understand that you were adopted for righteousness, then it's more than just Sunday morning. It's throughout the whole week. See, 
I can be assured that I am a child of God because I am adopted into his family. The process that God went through from the foundations of the world, he had predestined me to be adopted into the kingdom of God. And, and as, as you get adopted in our culture today and in most cultures, you can't unadopt a child. Am I right? I, I don't know much. I, I, I believe that when you adopt a child, you can't unadopt them. When you are saved, genuinely saved, and this is the doctrine of the, uh, the, of the security of the genuine believer, not the doctrine of once saved, always saved. I hear that a lot. Oh, yeah, I don't believe that once saved, always saved business. You know, because I see a lot of people that are saved and they're still acting like a devil. Well, it's because that's a whole different doctrine. All you have to do is say that you're saved and you're going to heaven. No. This is the doctrine of the genuine believer, his salvation, the regeneration of the genuine believer. Because once you're a child of God, once you're adopted, once you're brought in, your response is going to be like Paul says, we call, we call out and say, Abba, Father. God only has one son. We are all adopted and we are brought into Christ Jesus. This is the, this is the argument Paul was trying to make last week. We are in Christ. We are in Christ. As a matter of fact, if you look at Ephesians once again, Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 3, 3 and on, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Look at verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him, verse 5, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as the sons through Jesus Christ, verse 6, and has blessed us in the Beloved, which is Jesus Christ. In Him we have redemption. Look at verse 9. Set forth in Christ, in verse 10, as the, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him through things in heaven and things on earth. And it goes on in verse 12. In Christ might we be the praise and the glory in Him in verse 13. In Him, in Him. Paul is making that you are now in Him. You are clothed by Christ. You can walk this planet with assurance and confidence that regardless of what might happen, you will never be unadopted. God has planned this from the very beginning. He knows from the beginning to the end. He knows who's going to be saved. He knows how, how many people are going to fit into the temple of God. I think one of the arguments that I get a lot is, well, I don't think that's fair. And I go, that's, that's good. I'm glad to know what you think. But what does the Bible say? Well, I don't believe that. It's all right. You don't have to believe. But what does the Bible say? And it's very difficult to get that reconciled in our pea brains. Just like trying to get reconciled with the Trinity. You know, how do you reconcile that? That God has chosen me, yet He holds me accountable. Well, I, I, can, I can give you the theological term that, that uh, I hope will help you. Because God does hold you accountable for your actions, even though He's predestined you and chosen you. You are accountable. He, he, he told that to Nicodemus. He says, you know, how can you, the teacher of the law, the teacher of Israel, how can you not know these things? You've you got to be born again, yet you, I'm holding you accountable for not knowing it. you got to be born again. And the theological term is very simple. You might want to write this down. I don't know. I really don't know how that reconciles. I don't know how God is going to hold people accountable for what He says they're doing and how He's choosing and, and, and selecting and from the foundations of the Word. I, I, I just know that it's true. Uh, I think the first letter is, yeah, 
When we get into Ephesians, we'll talk a little bit more about that. We'll get, dive in deeper on that. And I just want to, I want, you, I want you to get your minds wrapped around this a little bit right now. Because until you get this adoption doctrine down, this theology, it, it's not going to make sense. Paul says, by this, uh, excuse me, John said, by this it is evident who are the children of God. Number two, I am empowered by the Spirit of God. Another way that I know that I am a child of God is I am empowered by the Spirit of God. Blessed be His name. When the sun is shining down on me, I'm going to bless His holy name. You know, I need to bless Him while the sun isn't shining. While I'm walking through the darkest places. When I'm in the midst of the desert, I'm still going to bless His name. Why? Because I have a Father that has my best interest at heart. And I might have to be going through this desert. And for some of you, some of you have been going through a desert for, for days or weeks or even months and Sorry to say, but I'm sure that I know the people that are listening right now, some of you have been going through these for for years, and you know who you are. That doesn't mean you're not adopted. The reason why and and, and how you can know that you are a child of God is because through these darkest days, you call out, Abba, Father. What did Jesus do? Jesus had instructed his disciples to pray in like manner. Abba, Father. But the first time that Jesus Christ used that as a personal pronoun to address God was in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was praying and he asked God, he says, Abba, is there any other way? Now, if you know anything about the experience of Jesus Christ within the Garden of Gethsemane, he was sweating these drops of blood, a condition which is known by hematidrosis, where the capillaries in your body, because of anguish or stress, they swell beyond their normal capacity, and they rub up against your sweat glands that you have, you know, thousands of these around your body, and they burst, and it causes this pain all over your body, and and this water just pours out like blood. And Luke, the physician, gives us a very good picture of that. He says, and his sweat was like drops of blood. And he's there pleading, Abba, Abba, is is there any other way? Take a little aside here. I know some people have said to you, all you have to do is have faith. And God will answer everything you have to ask him. Everything you want, all you have to do is have faith. And God will give it to you right there and then. Just name it and claim it. Proclaim it as loud as you can because the moment it comes out of your mouth, God has to give it to you. Well, I guess Jesus failed, right? Jesus was asking for another way. He was asking God, there's got to be another way. Yet, what did he say? Not my will, but yours be done. And he went and he prayed again. Can you take this cup from me? But not my will, your will be done. In your deepest anguish, the times of your deepest despair, your emotional distress, and in everything that you're going through physically, emotionally, spiritually, you can come to God and say, Abba, Father. See, non-believers don't do that. They'll say, oh, God. They'll use God's name in vain. Or they'll say, God, why are you letting this happen to me? Or, you know, this creator, this God of yours, why did God allow this to happen? Why, God? Why, God? Why? And that's how most unbelievers approach God. But you and I, those of you that have been adopted into the kingdom of God, 
Those of you that are in Christ, that clothed with Christ and understanding the power of God and understanding that this world is not our own, that we have a world, an inheritance that we haven't even got to yet, that, that we have coming to us, we can come to God and say, Abba, your will be done. Whatever, Father, Dad, whatever is going on in my life, I don't understand it, but I know that you do. And if you can't give me the rationale or the reason as to this, as to why this is happening, I'm going to trust and I'm going to sing, blessed be your name, in spite of what's going on. You know, here's something that, uh, that I think that would probably bring some light to, to this, because even if Jesus Christ himself were to come down and say, okay, all right, you want to know why this is happening? All right, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you why this is happening. You see, about 75 years ago, I started doing this. And in about another 15 or 20 years, this is going to happen. And you just happen to be in the way. Okay? So you're part of this plan that I'm doing in your children's or grandchildren's life. And because of that testimony that you will be able to proclaim, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Bless the God of all compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort others. See, a lot of the things that you go through, beloved, it's not really about you. It's about what God is doing to prepare you for the next step. And God is always about preparing, preparing, preparing. The law was to prepare the people for sonship. The challenges that you go through are preparing you for the time of election. The, the, the election and predestination is the time to prepare you for adoption. And salvation is preparing you for a time of glorification. You see, if God, if all he wanted to do was take you to heaven, he'd have taken you a long time ago. And some of you, some of you have experienced that, whew, that was a close one. Some of you have gone through that, either some sort of an accident or something. Some of you have gone, and you can give me some really bizarre stories, I'm sure, that you should have been dead. And if God, all he wanted to do was take you into heaven, he'd have taken you out a long time ago. But he is preparing you. He is sanctifying you. We call that salvation present. The salvation past is the regeneration part. That's the part where you are born again. Right now, it's the sanctification process, preparing you to the point of glorification. If all God wanted to do was get you to heaven, he'd have taken you a long time ago. But part of what he has given us as his children are responsibilities. Or oh, excuse me, I skipped one. Number three. Oh, boy, I better hurry up. Okay, number three. Uh, okay. I'm an heir of God. I'm an heir of God. I can be certain that I'm a child of God. Because I'm an error of God. That's spelled H-E-I-R, not E-R-R-O. Okay? You're not an error. You're an heir. Yeah, you know, my language sometimes, it kind of, okay. I'm glad you caught that because it's right there, right? Okay, good. So you're no longer a slave, Paul says, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You have the promises. You have been given everything that God has. Everything that belongs to Jesus Christ belongs to you. It does. The problem is, is that we don't see it. We don't have it. Work sometimes like that prodigal son. We want to get wasted. And so we want it now. And we claim it now. We desire it now. We covet it now. We, we fight for it now. We, we're, we're very greedy now. And we do all kinds of things just to get it now. And Jesus 
Paul, God says, you know, you got, hold on. You have to, you want, you want that promise? Yes. Okay. Well, you have to go through the same things that my son did. All right. Well, no problem. I can do that. You know, well, first of all, you do understand that was, was Jesus ridiculed? Was he laughed at? Was he mocked? Yeah. Well, you might have to go through that. Okay, God, I think I can do that. Was Jesus Christ misunderstood? Was he misunderstood and called a liar and all kinds of the devil and all kinds? Yeah, he, he was. Well, you might have to go through some of that. Was he persecuted? Yeah. W- was he crucified? Yes. We might need to go through some of those things in our life. The things that Jesus Christ went through, with the exception of the cross, but everything else, the Bible says that he experienced sin, but never, just like we do, but never sinned. He went through the same things. That, that we all do, except without sin. Was there doubt in his life? Was there uh, people burning him, turning away from him? Was there things happening in his life that, that, that caused all this pain in his life? Yeah. But the outcome of all that, and we can't see that, and many people don't want to see that because they want it now. You are an heir. You have all this coming to you. It is amazing on what God can do and, and when you understand that you have been adopted and you are secured. You, you know, the, the doctrine of adoption just takes care of a whole lot of things. It takes care of the security of the believer. There's some that believe that you can lose your salvation when you mess up. You know, I sinned. Well, you know, I, of course you did. Well, you don't even know what I did. Well, you sinned. I know you sinned. Well, no, no, I, did, I, I did, started drinking again or whatever the case. I started womanizing again. Well, that's a big sin, you know, but you lie every day. You, you cheat. You know, there's things that you do every day. Sin is not just the little things. Oh, no, but those are the little things. Sin is sin. And, you know, just like the prodigal son, you can come up to God. You can come up and say, Abba, Father, I messed up. And he's not like some of us when our children come to us. I told you that would happen. Mm-mm-mm. Go get yourself cleaned up. Don't even think about coming back into my house. You go, go get haircut or whatever the case may be. You know, God is not like that. He brings you back in. He washes you. He gives you sandals for your feet, a ring for your hand, and he clothes you in Jesus Christ. When you come back to God the Father. Now, did the prodigal son experience all this demise? Yeah, a lot of it was upon himself. And I think that's one of the things that causes doubt in a believer's life is the troubles that we go through, sometimes because of our own selfish desires, as James says. You see, we have an inheritance, Peter says in 1 Peter 1.4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. It is there. You are an heir of that. You have everything that Jesus, God, Peter, Paul, all these guys are talking about. Jesus even said in Romans chapter 14, excuse me, John 14, he says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And I'll come back so that you can be with me. Most people don't realize that Jesus is talking about the rapture right there. When he comes back to take us with him, we are going to be spending the seven-year tribulation period with him in heaven. Because when we come back, when he comes back in Revelation 19 on that white horse, we are going to come back with him to establish the kingdom on this planet. 
What Jesus is talking about here, he says, you know, that, that inheritance, I, I got it for you. It's set up. I'm going to go up there and prepare it for you. I'm going to come back, pick you up. We're going to take off. We're going to celebrate. And, and you have to understand the Jewish wedding in order to understand that picture as well. The groom would pick up the bride, bring her to the father's house, present her in front of everybody. The, the wedding party would last about, I don't know, anywhere from three to seven days, depending on how much money you had. And, and it would take all that time. And then the husband would take his wife, his bride, to, and, and consummate the marriage to their home. And so the, the Jewish wedding is in picture here. When Jesus says this, the people understood it. We don't understand it. Some people think, believe that that's the second coming. That's not the second coming. That happens in Revelation 19. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And number four, I have an obligation as a child of God. As a child of God, you have an obligation. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those by, that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? The people in Galatia, remember, they were going back to the law. They were going back to tradition. They were going back to ceremony. They were going back to the old things. They were, for the most part, genuine believers. Paul had attested to them, look, you guys are children of God. You're sons of God. Why are you going back there? You know, I don't know if you know this or not, but we're creatures of habit. We always go back to what we know. It is difficult to get a person out of an abusive relationship because they always go back to what they know. But this is new. This is different. It's too new. It's, it's, It's too different. At least here I know where I stand. Over here, I don't know what's going to happen. It's difficult to get people out of a drug-induced life because this is familiar. But over here is different. It's new. It's better. Yes, but I don't know what's going to happen. Here it is familiar. It's not different. It's difficult to get sinners out of sin. It's difficult to get them out of there. But once you are out of sin, and a lot of times we fall right back. Because what you're trying to do as a child of God, what you're trying to do is to serve God and worship God. But your flesh, unfortunately, is still attached to your spirit. (laughs) And that flesh is hungry. And that flesh will devour anything that gets in the way. And Satan will make sure that whatever it is that suits your fancy will be in your way. This is why he puts the bait on the hook. Temptation is the bait. The hook is Satan, and he got you. And it's hard to get these guys back out. And so you come to a a point where people make up these doctrines. Well, he lost his salvation. Well, no. If he stays there, he was never saved. But if a person falls back and comes back, and we help him and we encourage him and bring them back to where they need to be, and they grow from that and they learn from that, then they become heirs of God. They're still heirs of God. Disobedient heirs of God. You know, and and it's interesting, you know, going back to the analogy of adoption. And and again, I don't know, but I've heard and I've I've read a little bit about how when a a child, first of all, sometimes they don't even feel worthy. They don't even feel like, really? You're going to bring me into your house? This nice house from where I, I don't know. They don't even feel like they deserve it. As a matter of fact, many times they will buck the system because of their habits, of the things that were ingrained in them. And they don't take on the full clothing, the full covering of the father of the house, and they don't take on the full understanding, the teaching, the love. 
And even as they grow, they seem to always want to go back and find out who their relatives were. And, and you know, as, as a child of God, you don't want to go back to that system. You are not a ward of the state anymore. You belong to the household of God. And you belong there, and you stay there, and you, you worship there, and you love there. And the more that you feed your spirit, the less your flesh cries out. And the more that you contribute, the more that you get involved, the more that you grow, the more that you're going you're to be blessed. You're going to understand this whole process of adoption because God chose you. And that should blow you away. That blows me away. Why God chose you? No. Why God chose me? That blows me away. Why did God choose me? If you were to ever take a ride with me to Northern California and talk to some of my family members, I'm one of the oldest of the family, and people say, you? <laughs> a pastor? Come on. You would see that my lifestyle was not a lifestyle that was, I, I don't even talk about it. All I can tell you that I was a very deviant individual, drugs, alcohol, burned my wife, burned my family, burned everybody around me. People didn't trust me. And I, even now, because of that, well, we really don't trust you now. <laughs> You're a preacher. But you know, the honest truth is that God changed my life. And I thank God that when we moved down to Southern California, it was supposed to be three, four years tops. And then we were supposed to go back. But God saw to it that I stay here and grow here and plant here and grow others as well. You see, formally, when you did not know God, well, yeah, it's, it's understandable. You cannot expect a non-believer to act like a believer. You just can't. All these things that are going on politically and socially, you can't expect them to act like believers because they're not. But you, beloved, I can expect you to act like a believer. You can expect each other to hold each other accountable to act like believers. Otherwise, we're just like the world. But now that you've known God, you see, He's given you that spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 11 says, In the spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His spirit who dwells in you. You have an obligation to allow the Holy Spirit to work through you. And the only way that you can do that is by reading His Word, getting into study, understanding what's happening, what's going on in, in, in the Word of God in my life. Look at Ephesians 3.16, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. And, and the Holy Spirit Himself, he, he gives you, He has a ministry of convicting the world of sin, of teaching you, of bringing things to remind it, to, to, to remind her. And he, re he reminds you of the things that God has shared with you and the things that you have read. But one of the biggest responsibilities of the Holy Spirit is to continue to just teach you. You want your heart to burn for God? Remember the story that we shared during the Resurrection Sunday of the two disciples going to Emmaus? They encounter this man. They didn't know who he was. And this man, which was Jesus, of course, says to him, what's wrong with you guys? Well, you know, we're, we're just coming back from Jerusalem. Everybody was, was all up in arms, wanted to kill our master, our Messiah. Well, what happened? Well, don't you know? And Jesus says, haven't you read the law, the prophets, and the writings? And from that point, he took them to the scriptures. He had Bible study with them on the road to, to Emmaus. 
And on the road to Emmaus, these men were just like, give us more, give us, I got to go. He's he's taken off and no, 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 have dinner, stay with us. And when he broke the bread and gave the blessing, their eyes were open. You want your heart to burn inside? Get into his word. That's where you'll encounter Jesus. It wasn't until that moment, after they read, after they heard, after they understood the, 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 the verses, the Old Testament about the Messiah, that their eyes were open. And they said, didn't our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scripture. You have an obligation as a child of God to get into his word. You see, because in Romans 8, 15, I'll finish with this for you. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the, the Greek term here, this cry, it's not just like, you know, in, in worship or in singing. No, this is a mourning, a, 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 a painful cry. This is the cry that Jesus Christ gave in the Garden of Gethsemane. Paul is equating the same thing. As you go through these situations in life, some of you have been through some situations in life. Some of you are in some situations in life. But all of us are coming up to some situations in life. Because you are a child of God, you have the obligation to come to Him. And He's not going to be like your parents. Or maybe your parents were were very well, very good as they taught you and they helped you to see the error of what you've done. You know, and some of our parents, I told you, get out of here. You know, should have learned your lesson the first time. You know, whatever the case may be, God is not like that. God desires for you to know Him. And to know that you are his child. Let me ask you to stand. Paul has a lot more to say about this. And we'll talk about that as the, as the days come. But ultimately, he's, he's going back to the people in Galatia. Don't be living under the law. Don't try to, you know, get saved. Or, or you know, what you do is you just, you're a child of God. Act like one. Follow the Father. What does the Father say? This is what He says. Okay, let's do that. Let's not do this. Let's read the Scriptures. Let's get into the Word of God. Let's let's pray together. Let's huddle together. Let's worship together. Let's study together. Let's grow together. We're a family. You are, as well as I am, in Christ. And we come together to acknowledge that. That we are in you, God. And not in ourselves. This is not the first church of Sal or even of North Park. This is your church, Lord. And we come to recognize that, that you've called us into this body. And in this body, we will grow and we'll develop. And we will share the good news with others, the gospel that is straight up, blunt, offensive. And we will share that gospel because it's truth. We share that gospel with our loved ones because we love them. And we know what the penalty of sin is. And we're not going to sugarcoat sin and call it just a a mistake or an affair or an alternative lifestyle. We're not going to call it uh, just other words that others are trying to deconstruct the gospel. Father in heaven, we want to share your gospel with this dying world, especially with our children, with our grandchildren, with our loved ones, because we love them. That love that you've given us that you have poured out in our hearts to help us to, and the spirit that has given us to, to help us to scream out and cry out, Abba, Father, 
that anguish that we should have for those that we love to come to a saving knowledge of you, to honor you and to be righteous and serve righteousness instead of this world. Father, help us to continue on and to grow in that manner. So thank you, Lord, for all that you do. Thank you for this word and uh, just the doctrine of adoption and, and how beautiful of a picture it is to know that you chose us. So, Father, thank you once again, we pray in Jesus' name.